This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. We want to discuss tonight the purpose of suffering in a way this is the climax of everything we have talked about so far, the purpose. We are assuming, of course, God's sovereign control of suffering, so the question is, what is God's purpose in sending sufferings upon us? And only when we understand God's purpose will we be able to put the sufferings which we are called to endure in their proper biblical perspective. I'm going to switch things around just a little bit. What I have to say is indeed included in the outline, but probably not quite in the order in which the material is presented there. And at least for the first part of our discussion tonight, I want to call your attention especially to three or four key passages in Scripture. I do not mean to say by this that there are not many, many passages in Scripture which discuss and make clear to us the purpose of our sufferings, but these seem to me the the, uh, key passages and uh, give me an opportunity to say some of the things which I think need to be said. I want to call your attention, first of all, to the passage which Dan read Uh, a few moments ago in Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians by way of of a sort of a side uh, observation at this point. I'd like to call your attention to what the apostle writes in the first part of verse 10. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That seems to me a particularly striking and critical statement. We bear about in our bodies, and obviously the references to our sufferings, as he makes clear in the verses that precede, the dying of the Lord Jesus. That's what's happening to us. The Lord Jesus is dying in our bodies. That strikes me as significant. But I call your attention to that only in passing, at least for the moment. What I am more interested in is, right now, is the last verses of this chapter, particularly verses 16, 17, and 18. In those verses, the apostle is talking about our afflictions and our afflictions in comparison with the glory that awaits us in heaven. And in order to make a proper comparison of our afflictions as over against the glory that awaits us, he uses the figure of a scale, not the kind of scales that are used nowadays, but the kind of scales that were used in the old days which had a kind of a dish on both sides and things were weighed by balancing them. What the apostle does in this figure is put on one side of the scale our afflictions. 
and he puts on the other side of the scale the glory of heaven. That he has this figure in mind is evident from the expression he uses, our light affliction which is but for a moment worketh for us a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, that idea of weight. So he puts the two on a scale and in that way compares their relative uh, weight. And he comes to the conclusion as he compares our afflictions to the glory that awaits us, that our afflictions are extremely light. That may strike us as an amazing statement, and it may strike us, in fact, as such an amazing statement that in puzzlement and some consternation, we say to Paul, just a minute, Paul, we're not altogether sure you have things straight here. You haven't been in our home recently where almost unbelievable sorrow and grief has afflicted our family. You haven't visited any hospitals lately. You haven't been to the cemetery or been to any funerals. And you certainly must not have visited the battlefields of this earth where the blood of the young men of a nation are, is spilled on the ground. Light afflictions? Is that what you're talking about? Do you dare to call the afflictions which I am called to endure light afflictions? Were you in the Colosseum when the Christians were fed to the lions? Were you alive at the time of the Reformation when God's people were slowly boiled, slowly roasted over hot fires as their bodies turned on the spit of their enemies? And you talk about afflictions as being light but the apostle's answer to that is, yes, those afflictions are light. And those afflictions are light when you put them on the scale where you have on the other side of it the glory that awaits us in heaven. If you want to compare the two by any standard of comparison at all, there just simply is none. When the glory that awaits us in heaven is put on this side of the scale, then this shoots way up as far as it'll go, and this way down as far as it, is go, it will go because all the weight is here. In other words, although we from the viewpoint of this earth consider our afflictions to be extremely grievous and the sufferings which the Lord calls us to bear sometimes almost more than we are capable of bearing. Nevertheless, Paul says, remember the worst of them and all of them together, which any child of God bears in his life, are light. And that's because of the fact that the glory which awaits us is so great, so magnificent, so splendid, so utterly joyous that the afflictions which we suffer fade away into almost non-existence when that glory becomes ours. Nevertheless, it's difficult for us to see that now because the Bible doesn't tell us very much of what that glory is, except as the apostle himself says here in the text, it's eternal. 
It's an eternal glory. It's a exceedingly and eternal weight of glory. While the afflictions of this present time are temporal, they're only for a moment. But the apostle has considerably more to say about that. And this, to my mind, is important. He talks about the fact in these same in this same text, that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us that exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The afflictions work for us that glory. The afflictions operate in such a way that through their operation in our lives, we attain glory. And in fact, the afflictions are so necessary to attain glory that without them, glory would be forever beyond our reach. How is it? The apostle is very specific, very concrete, very definite when he says, explains how afflictions work our glory. And he explains that in verse 16. Though our outward man perish, or maybe perhaps more accurately, though our outward man is decaying, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Now, I don't think the terms outward man and inward man ought to be foreign to you or unintelligible. They simply refer to what in other parts of Scripture are called the new man and the old man. The outward man is the old man of sin. More than the body, you must not identify the outward man with the body exclusively. But it does include the body and it includes as well our souls to a certain extent, insofar as our souls are part of our earthly existence, insofar as our souls originally in paradise were created out of the dust of the earth. Although there is another side to our souls, which is described as being created by the breath of life of the living God. That outward man is the old man, that is, the whole of our nature, the, our nature which remains totally depraved. And never on this side of the grave is anything else but totally depraved. Affliction makes that old man decay. It's a striking expression. A little bit further, chapter 5, verse 1 still referring to this outward man, the apostle speaks of it as the earthly house of this tabernacle is in the process of being dissolved by virtue of affliction. Affliction dissolves the earthly house, it dissolves the outward man, it dissolves our old depraved and corrupted natures. 
That's not hard for us to experience. We experience that all the time. Sickness and pain of every conceivable kind is part of the dissolution of our outward man. At my age, I can't help but be reminded practically every day that I'm decaying. And I'm decaying because I can't climb the steps as fast as I used to climb them. I can't do the work in one day, which at one time I could do. I can't lift the weight that at one time I was able to, to lift. Diseases come more frequently. Illnesses plague my body of every conceivable kind. They're all part of the decay, but at the same time, my mind decays too. I can't remember things as good as I used to. I can't always think as clearly as when I was younger. And indeed, things that are troublesome bother me much more than they used to when I was a young man and are much more likely to keep me tossing on my bed sleepless at night than 30 or 40 years ago. My outward man is decaying. But don't forget, that's the man that is totally depraved. While on the other hand, the apostle says, the inner man is renewed. Now, I like that term renewed. It almost, well, let me put it this way. The fact that the apostle uses the term renewed here is rather comforting to me. He doesn't use, for example, the word, as the outer man is dissolved, the inner man increases in strength. Now, maybe he means that, and that may be included in it, but I don't notice much of that in my own life, and I'm not sure many Christians do. Years ago when I was a young man belonging to the Young Men's Society in First Church in Grand Rapids, we began the practice of taking the recorded sermons to the shut-ins. At that time, the sermons were recorded on wire recorders that were about 80 pounds in weight. Now you can put a little recorder in your shirt pocket and hardly notice it's there. But in those days, they weighed 80 pounds. And the old people who were frequently very lonesome used to like it if we would stay and chat with them. But because they were nearing the end of their pilgrimage, they liked to talk about spiritual things. What struck me was that in every instance in which they would talk about their own spiritual life, they would say to me, and I presume to others with whom they would discuss these things, the older I get, the more wicked I become. There was no exception to that. No one ever said to me, the older I get, the more holy I become. And First, I thought it was a kind of a false humility and rather easily shrugged it off without giving it any second thought. But because it was the unanimous 
conclusion of every child of God whom we visited, and we visited many, perhaps as many as 40 or 50, it began to trouble me no end. I looked at these old people, some of whom had been bedridden for years as being some of the most saintly people that I knew. And I must admit that in some instances I coveted their sanctity and their holiness. And here they were all telling me, that isn't the way it is. It isn't as if the older I get, the holier I become. It's quite the contrary. It troubled me so much that I talked to my father about it once and asked him how this could possibly be. And he explained it, explained that indeed in the life of the child of God, there is some progress in sanctification as one becomes older, so that indeed he becomes holier with the passing of the years. But the progress in sanctification is of a type which most people don't expect. It's a deeper awareness of the horror of sin. It's a greater sorrow that by our sins we have provoked God, not a sorrow that arises out of our being caught in our sins and now having to bear the consequences but that as the versification in our Psalter of Psalm 51 puts it, I have sinned against thy grace and provoked thee to thy face. That kind of a knowledge of sin increases as one becomes older. Besides that, he said, not only does the knowledge of sin increase, but the awareness of the depths of one's own sin becomes increasingly more profound. He realizes more and more that he is incapable of doing any good and that his best works are corrupted and polluted with sin. And said my father, that may surprise you, but those are all the evidences of sanctification and growth in holiness. And he talks some more about those things. The apostle, uses, I think, the word renewed here for a particular reason. The word renewed suggests this, that in the course of my life as I grow older and as you grow older, not only does the consciousness and awareness of sin grow greater, but it seems as if more and more the outward man, the old man of sin, conquers the new man, the inner man, so that he, the inner man, is so beaten and bruised and battered that sometimes he seems to be prostrate on the ground and hardly functioning, and the old man seems to have the victory. The apostle says, no, although in a sense that's true, he uses the word renewed, and that's an ideal translation here. Every day, every day that new man is renewed. Every day that new man is renewed by affliction. That's the tool God uses to renew the inner man. And 
gradually to make the outward man decay. And so the apostle, be, I wish there had not been a break between chapters 4 and 5. Sometimes the gentleman who divided the Bible into chapters and verses didn't do a very good job of it. Sometimes he did an excellent job, but here would have been much better if verse 1 of chapter 5 had been included with chapter 4. Finally, as the outward man decays, as this earthly house dissolves, it dissolves completely, and that's death. That's the greatest affliction of all, that we die. We're dying every day, and gradually we, as we rot away, literally rot away, and the old man rots away. It all reaches its climax in death. And one would think, says the apostle, that that would be the end. But because the inner man is renewed day by day, at the moment of death, and the apostle stresses that in the language he uses, at the moment when the earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's how suffering works glory. It works glory by dissolving the outer man and renewing the inner man. Affliction does that of all sorts until death comes when we receive our house not made with hands. I have no, not very much idea, I think none at all, of what that house is. We have it, the apostle says. When we die, we don't have to wait for it. We don't have to be in some kind of another netherland, in some kind of a purgatory, in some kind of a narthex to heaven, while we're sitting on a bench waiting at the moment, at the moment the earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved, we have the house of God. He gives us that at the very moment we die. That's not made with hands. That's eternal in the heavens. And further on in that chapter, he defines that as being clothed upon. To die is to be stripped naked. He will, God will not leave us naked. He will clothe us. But affliction is the means. That's one of the purposes of God. In other words, affliction sanctifies us by gradually choking the power out of the outward man and causing the inward man to be stronger and stronger. That's a significant passage. And I recommend it to you for those times in which afflictions in your life become very great. The entire passage is marvelous in that respect. The next passage to which I want to call your attention, which describes the purpose of affliction in a rather graphic way, is a passage in 1 Peter 
First Peter 4. I'm not, I haven't got time to read the context, but in the context, the apostle is talking primarily about persecution, although he has in mind all of our sufferings, but especially persecution, that is suffering for well-doing. A man can suffer for evil-doing too, and Peter specifically uh, mentions, for example, suffering for being a busybody or a thief, verse 15. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. If you suffer for those reasons, there's nothing to it. There's no profit in suffering at all. You get what's coming to you. But if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this behalf. And then verses 17 and 18 are the two passages that I want to consider. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first Begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? That's a striking passage. The apostle has in mind something like this. That in the very center of history stands the cross of Christ on Calvary. And that Christ is that cross of Christ is the center of history because past that cross flows throughout all of history the entire population of the world. Every the stream of mankind from Adam to the end of time, can be compared to a mighty, mighty river that flows over Calvary. But what happens is that when that river flows past Calvary, that river is divided into two rivers. The cross being the power that divides it with this river being, as Peter calls it here in the text, the house of God, and this river being the disobedient, those who obey not the gospel, and so on and so forth. The reprobate. The cross is the dividing power. But, says Peter, and this is the point to remember, that cross stands for judgment. A judgment that comes upon the whole human race. He says that. He even, even, he even underscores that when he says, judgment must begin at the house of God. That's where it starts. Comes on the people of God as well as on the wicked. Judgment. But the cross through which that judgment comes on the world, 
divides the world by its power. Christ himself, as you know, said on the eve of his crucifixion, now is come the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. It all comes through the cross. And that's because of the fact that the cross is the expression, the sovereign expression of election and reprobation. Those who talk about a cross for all men have, haven't the faintest notion of what they're talking about. They don't understand the first thing about the cross. Election and reprobation is realized in the cross. That doesn't exclude sin. After all, the one question that's going to be asked every single man in the judgment day, every single man who ever lived is this, what did you do with Christ? That's the one question. Every man will have to give answer to that. What did you do with Christ? And election and reprobation dividing them divides them in such a way that this branch of the river will say, we crucified him, and if he comes on earth, we're going to crucify him again. And this branch of the river says, as Thomas said, my Lord and my God. The cross does that. The cross is judgment. And that's because God poured his judgment upon his only begotten son. That's the fundamental idea which underlies Peter's assertion here. Now, let me call your attention to a couple of elements. In the first place, when the text says that that judgment must begin at the house of God, that does not mean, and you must not interpret it that way, as if there was some point in history, say, in 100 A.D., where judgment came upon the house of God, that is, upon the elect. It continued there for 500 or 600 years, and then left the house of God, now to come upon the ungodly world. That isn't what Peter has in mind. When he says that judgment must begin at the house of God, what he means is that judgment is really in the final analysis for the purpose of the house of God. I don't know if I can make that clear. The judgment that God poured out upon, Calvary, upon Christ on Calvary is a judgment which accomplishes all of God's purpose in judgment by judging the reprobate with the severest of judgments and by judging the people of God, the house of God, as the text itself says, as righteous. That's the judgment of God on the house of God. Righteous. But if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? So the judgment that comes on Calvary, even that comes upon the reprobate, is for the benefit of the people of God. If I may probably make it a little bit clearer by appealing to a verse in Isaiah 1 where Isaiah is explaining the captivity. 
He says in Isaiah 1, I think it's verse 27, Zion is redeemed through judgment. And Isaiah does not only mean that Zion is redeemed because the judgment of God was on Christ when he died on the cross, which is true enough and which must never, never, never be forgotten. But Zion is redeemed through judgment because God brings the judgment of the captivity upon Judah for the purposes of destroying Judah. And through that destruction of Judah, Zion is redeemed. Yes, verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. That's what Peter is talking about here in chapter 4, verse 17. Now, the point is, of course, that although the cross is the dividing between the elect and reprobate, nevertheless, the judgments that come upon Christ in Calvary come upon the whole world, the house of God too. And they come upon the house of God because, as Peter explains it, the righteous are scarcely saved. What does that mean? It means that the righteous barely make it to heaven. They get there, so to speak, by the skin of their teeth. And indeed, they barely make it to heaven because it is so desperately difficult to save them. We ought to give that some thought. You think your salvation is a snap? You think that all that God has to do is click his fingers and presto, you're saved? The text doesn't mean to comment, of course, upon God's omnipotence. God is omnipotent. He's almighty. He's all-powerful. But from our point of view, and from the point of view of God's work of salvation, if I may put it that way, and I know I speak as a man, God had his hands full to get us to heaven. If you don't think it was so difficult for God to take us to heaven, then look what was required. He had to take his own son and give him to the shameful and utterly bitter death of the cross to purchase for us salvation. You don't think that hurt God? Then you better read again the story of Abraham as he trudged with his son Isaac up Mount Moriah. And Isaac in a wondering tone said to his father, Father, here's the fire and here's the wood, but where's the sacrifice? God will provide the sacrifice, my son. Think of the agony. Think of the... The heart, the broken heart of Abraham when he sacrificed his son. 
That's given in Scripture deliberately to remind us of the fact that God was not in heaven unmoved, coldly indifferent to the writhing anguish of his son on Calvary. But when his son in paradise, in Gethsemane said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, Father. God was, and again I speak as a man, I don't know how else to say it, God was as heartbroken as Christ when he said, there is no other way this people that I purpose to save can only be saved in this way. And so, Peter means to say, the judgments that come upon us, as well as on the wicked world, while they carry the wicked world on their sweeping tide to everlasting hell, are judgments that save the people of God. When I was going to grade school, I think I was about 10 or 11 years old first, I worked on a farm. I worked on a farm from the time I was 10 or 11 until probably the end of my first year in college, every summer on the farm. And those of you who have worked on the farm know that the farm has a way of getting into your blood. There's an expression about that. You can take a farmer from the farm, but you can't take the farm from the farmer. There's truth to that. And so when I was minister in Iowa, at least a couple of days, every summer I would go to the farm and work with the farmer. Well, one time I came to the farmer to work with him for the day, and of all things, he was fixing his combine. Well, I felt like fixing combines. I would rather be home making a sermon, but there I was. So the combine had to be fixed. So he, he told me, you crawl inside of that thing. And I had to do something or other in there. I don't know what it was while he was working from the outside. And then I saw the inside of a combine. And the inside of a combine has in it, of course, as some of you know, a huge drum. And that drum is perforated with rather small holes. You can change the size of the drum so that the holes are bigger or smaller, but that drum turns, turns rather slowly. Inside of that drum is what the farmers called a beater. I think that is a mild name for it. Inside of that drum was an axle with, I suppose you could call them beaters all right, but they were sharp and nasty. And they spun at an unbelievably fast rate the opposite direction from the direction the drum was turning. The drum was turning this way, the beaters were turning this way. And going at a tremendous rate of speed, the wheat the, the, the cut wheat with the straw and the chaff was cut, fell on a platform, and delivered into that beater. 
And if you saw that thing operate, you would say to yourself, there isn't a, a kernel of wheat or oats or barley that can survive going through that torture chamber. But it did, it did. And so the wheat fell through the holes and the grain worked itself out the other direction, I mean the, the, the straw, and was deposited behind the combine on the field. And then the thought struck me. This is what it takes to get the wheat separated from the straw. And if the wheat has to be separated from the straw by such a relentless beating, it's no wonder that when God separates in you and me the wheat, the inner man, as Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians 4, from the outward man, that it takes something extraordinarily drastic, something almost frightening in its horror, to get the two separated from each other. That's why judgment comes on the house of God, too. It comes through the cross, and thank God it comes through the cross, because it comes through the cross where Christ bore the judgment against our sins upon himself and endured the wrath of God so that what we could never do, he did. But it still takes the kind of suffering which the people of God have to endure in order to accomplish that purpose, to deliver the new man in Christ from the clutches of the old man. And that's because in the first place we're born into the human race. The human race flows past Calvary and the people of God have to be taken out of that human race, separated from that human race. But even after they're separated from that human race and are now the house of God, as long as they belong to the house of God here in the world, it's still extraordinarily difficult to save them, to save you and to save me. Almost impossible. Why? Well, because the new man in Christ is, as it were, engulfed by the old man of sin, held in his clutches, and that that death grasp of the old man has to be broken. And that's evident in all of our lives. We don't even appreciate what God does for us every day of our lives. If you can picture your life as walking along the edge of a precipice, we're always right on the edge. And if God did not hang on to us with might and with main every moment, over we'd go. We're always trying to get over that edge because we like sin. We like the pleasures of sin. We know down there's hell. We don't care. We like the pleasures of sin more than to rob us of the fright of hell. And so God has to use extraordinary means to keep us from killing ourselves, to keep us from committing spiritual suicide. I know I do that. If the Lord would let me go for just one moment. And the only means at God's disposal to keep me from committing spiritual suicide is 
affliction, suffering. That's all. As the inner man is renewed day by day and the outward man gradually dissolves, God is working his purpose in that great and wonderful work whereby he saves us. In spite of our constant opposition, in spite of our determination to prevent him from doing his work, in spite of kicking and screaming and tugging in the other direction all along. And yet that new man is renewed. And that new man includes too, not only the body, but the mind and the will. What a powerful figure that is. Remember, you are scarcely saved. You are saved with the greatest of difficulty. And I personally am firmly of the conviction that pastors, when they do their pastoral work and visit the sick and the suffering and the dying, and people who are passing through fiery trials, must not be goody-goodies and must not talk as if affliction is nothing to be concerned about in any major way but that the choice which is ours, although God makes the choice for us, is this. You want a life of pleasure? You want a life free from trouble and sorrow? Then you're buying hell. When the Lord sends afflictions and troubles, remember that's because you and I are dreadfully wicked people. And the most extraordinary means have to be used by God to save us along with the suffering and along with the trials, is glory. The suffering is working glory. That's the figure of Peter. Now, anyone have any questions on that? The question is, when God chastises us, is there wrath involved? The answer to that question is most emphatically yes. There is wrath involved. Chastisement is wrath. David sings of that, as you all know. In thy wrath and hot displeasure, chasten not thy servant, Lord. I was going to talk about chastisement tonight, but we're not going to get around to it. So... Sometime, if you ask me to preach in hope, I'll preach on Hebrews 12 and chastisement. But you bring up an interesting question and an important question. You know, there's a, Henry quoted Psalm 118 a little while ago. How wondrous are the ways of God. But you know, you must understand that that was true of the cross, too. Christ endured the wrath of God. What Christ knew on Calvary was this, that God was angry with him to the point of pushing him into the lowest depths of hell. 
Now, that's a mystery, of course. When Christ was baptized, then again on the Mount of Transfiguration, and again on the Passion Week, God had publicly announced from heaven, Thou art my Son. No, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And that was in the consciousness of Christ. That he was God's beloved Son. And that God looked upon him with favor and love. And Christ himself sang of that in the Psalms. The loving kindness of my God is more than life to me. At the same time, the catechism, Heidelberg Catechism, tells us that from the beginning of his life on earth to the end, he bore the wrath of God. So he knew both the love of God and the wrath of God, the anger of God at the same time. Which means, of course, that for Christ, wrath and love are not incompatible. Same thing is true with parents. They can be angry with their children, very angry, but that doesn't mean they don't love them. And indeed, if you think about it, their anger may be a manifestation of their love. Because I love you, I'm angry with you because of what you do. It seems in the life of Christ that the nearer he got to the cross, the more the balance tipped from the consciousness of the love of God to the consciousness of the wrath of God. And that at last, during those three hours of darkness, especially toward the end, when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All he knew was wrath, that's all. To live apart from God is death. All Christ knew was being abandoned by God and being apart from him. The death of hell was awful. He couldn't even for a bit understand why he had to suffer so terribly. He didn't even dare to call God his father. There was no love, no consciousness of his love. And yet the amazing part of it is, you know, that although all that Christ knew was wrath, God was never so pleased with his son as at that moment when Christ cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But Christ didn't know it. Now that suffering was Christ's especially because it was true, literally true, that the loving kindness of God was for Christ more than life. He said that, too, to his disciples. Now is my soul troubled, even unto death. What shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour, but for this purpose have I come into this hour. Father, glorify thy name. That's all he could say. 
you all know that if you're parents. You may be very angry with your son or your daughter. And you may send them to their room, and you may send them to their room with a consciousness in their minds that you are very, very angry with them. They can't stand that. The ch child can't stand that. Especially if he loves his parents, as Christ loved God. And so pretty soon, you will find him creeping out from the room, hesitantly, softly, hoping he's not noticed. And he'll lay his little hand on his father's arm and say, do you love me? That's the question, see. Do you love me? And the father will say, of course, I do. I'm angry with you. But that doesn't mean that I don't love you. So God, when he chastises us, he's angry with us. And I personally think we ought to be more aware of that too. We provoke God to anger. But that doesn't mean he doesn't love us, except that the consciousness, the consciousness of his love is gone. And all we know is his wrath and hot displeasure manifested in chastening. What I have to say, finally, in conclusion, it's going to take me a little while, and it's really 10 to 9. And I'm afraid I'm going to have to go a little beyond 9. So if any of you have to leave, feel free to do that. I, I have to finish this. It's kind of the, the end of the matter. And so you will have to bear with me going a little over time. Of course, I can blame Dan. He took about 20 minutes for opening devotions. <laughs> the woman thou gavest me. <clears throat> what I want to talk about by way of conclusion is the relationship of our suffering to the suffering of Christ. And consequently, the relationship of the believer to Christ. This is a very mysterious thing. I'm not sure I understand it very well myself. In fact, I don't think I do. But I'm going to tell you some of the things which have been the object of my musings and ponderings and studying of Scripture for a long time. And maybe the Lord will gradually make things a little clearer for us. What is the relationship between the sufferings of Christ and our sufferings? And as a result, what is the relationship of the believer to Christ? going to take my starting point in Colossians 1, verse 24, and you may look that up if you wish. Colossians 1, verse 24 reads as follows. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you? That is Paul. Paul rejoices 
in his sufferings for the Colossians. And then he makes this statement, and he means to say, this is why I rejoice. And fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh. That is, I fill up what's left over of Christ's sufferings. I fill that up in my flesh for the sake of the church, which is Christ's body, for his body's sake, which is the church. Now that means, that text means, if it means anything at all, that God has from all eternity, from before the foundations of the world, determined in his counsel a certain definite and fixed amount of suffering which Christ and the church, that is Christ and his people, will have to endure. It's a definite amount. It's fixed eternally. And God will not have attained his purpose in history until that fixed amount is full. That is, that all the suffering which he has determined will have been accomplished by Christ and his people. That means in the second place, and Paul says that here literally, Christ suffered in this world, but he did not suffer as much as he could have suffered. Now the reference is not, of course, to suffering for sin. He did it all. He suffered everything that was necessary to suffer to pay for the sins of his people. If he didn't do that, we could never be saved. And the Reformation, if there was one overriding theme of all the reformers, it was this, over against Rome, the all-sufficiency of the suffering of Jesus Christ for sin. So bear that in mind. That isn't what Paul has in mind. Nevertheless, as far as his other suffering is concerned, he didn't suffer as much as he could have. But he purposely and deliberately left a certain measured amount of that suffering for the church to suffer, which is his body, and which Paul personally says that he bears in his flesh. Now that means that Christ's suffering involved more than paying for sin, going to hell to pay the price of sin. He suffered in countless ways. And the point which I am suggesting to you tonight is this, that Christ in his earthly ministry 
and in his final hours suffered everything you and I suffer, without exception. He suffered in every way we suffer. There's no exception to that. We all know he suffered persecution. We all know that. They have hated me, they will hate you. Jesus warns his disciples. But Isaiah 53 reminds us, for example, that he bore all our sicknesses and pains. I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us whether the Lord was ever sick. But he bore them anyway. And it's very well possible, of course, during the time of his birth, during the period between his birth and his, the beginning of his public ministry in those 30 years, that he was sick. Maybe sometimes very, very sick. Isaiah is specific. He bore our sicknesses and pains. Part of our suffering is that we die. He died. He died. Physically, he died. Part of our suffering is that we are deceived by our closest friends sometimes. Christ was too. Psalm 69 speaks of it. Judas Iscariot. Christ suffered the misunderstanding of his friends. Repeatedly they contradicted him. His friends, repeatedly they were preoccupied with dreams and visions of an earthly kingdom, much to Christ's consternation. They didn't understand him. And when finally the motley throng from the high priest captured him in the garden, they all forsook him and fled. His disciples, the ones with whom he had lived for three years, his closest friends, his companions, those whom he needed desperately. Even in the garden, Peter, James, and John, his bosom, intimate friends, could ye not watch with me one hour? When he needed them the most, they weren't there to help. They didn't understand his suffering. And really, they didn't care all that much. Not about the kind of suffering which he was enduring, the agony of the cross. How he would have loved to have their understanding, their encouragement, their assurance of their prayers for him. But instead, they ran away. And in the palace of Caiaphas, one of his most beloved disciples cursed and swore that he never knew him and wanted no part of him. All part of the suffering of Christ. Isaiah 53 even goes so far as to say that he was chastised. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. That is, the stripes that ripped his back to ribbons when the cruelty of the Roman soldiers gleefully manifested itself in whipping him within an inch of his life. There is no suffering 
not even the suffering of temptation that he did not suffer, which is our common lot. He was tempted in all points as we are tempted, though without sin. He knew the horror of temptation. He knew the struggle against it. He knew the battle. He knew how difficult it is to resist temptation. He knew the, even the attractiveness of temptation, of sin. He knew it. And if you say, yes, but he didn't have to fight against sin as you and I do, he bore our sins and he bore our guilt. Read the Psalms again and remember time and time again when David is almost overwhelmed by his enemies, Christ is singing of that great enemy of him and of us, our sins that he bore as a heavy load. Now, if it is true that Christ suffered every kind of affliction which you and I suffer, then it is also true and follows necessarily that we suffer every kind of suffering which Christ knew. And that's a point which I believe needs to be emphasized as strongly as possible. Not simply because of the fact that Christ said, I don't even like to talk this way, but it's the only way I know to get my point across. Christ said, well, now I've done my share. Now I'm going to show you what it was like when I suffered. So I'm going to make you suffer the same way as I did so that you will have some appreciation for my suffering. Not, not, not that way, not that way. But when we suffer every single way in which Christ suffered, bar none, except that he bore the wrath of God against sin and paid for it, that we can never do. Christ gives us the privilege of doing that. His suffering and death on the cross wrought salvation, and by the power of the cross and his power in our lives, our suffering works salvation. And in order for our suffering to work salvation, we have to suffer in every way he did. Every single way in which he suffered. We have to share in the fullness of his sufferings. We have to know every bit of suffering which he endured. And we have to know that because we are one with him. We are his body. We are united to him. We are from all eternity elect in him. We are in him in such a way that he is married to us and we to him. How can a husband suffer without the wife suffering? And how can the wife suffer without the husband suffering? Is not every bit of the, of the suffering of a husband the wife's as well? And so it is with Christ and the church. It is the ironic, the paradoxical part of it is that the terrible suffering which Christ endured in every way possible, except when he suffered the hell for our sins, is suffering that comes to us too, but it's part of Christ's sufferings. 
we fill that which is left behind of the sufferings of Christ. Even, mind you, to the point of being abandoned by God. We looked at some of those psalms last time. There's an ache in my soul whenever I read those psalms because I know what it means. When Christ hung there on the cross, he was abandoned by God, literally. We know what that means. If you've never been abandoned by God, you don't know what suffering is all about. But if you're a child of God, you have. Where your heart cries out in bitter anguish, where is my God? Where is he? I can't find him. Sometimes the psalmist uses such powerful expressions as these. He must be on a far trip so that he's so far away he can't hear me when I cry because he doesn't pay any attention to me. He acts as if I don't exist. It is as if he ignores me and maybe deliberately ignores me because he has turned his back upon me and nothing I do will bring me to him. That sort of a thing. That was Christ on Calvary. But in our own afflictions, we know what that is. To be abandoned by God. And that's the worst thing that can happen. That's finally what brings the sinner in the dust, writhing in the agony of his helpless condition. God doesn't hear. God won't answer. God won't help him. God is far away. Where is he? Where is he? Why doesn't he come to my aid? Has God forgotten to be kind? Has he in anger hid his face? Even that aspect of Christ's suffering is ours. And now, and that is the light that pierces brilliantly through it all, it is exactly that identity of the sufferings of Christ with the sufferings of the church which are, as it were, the power whereby we and Christ are one. Suffering is proof of our oneness with Christ. Suffering means we share in the sufferings which he endured. Because he's our friend, he's our companion, he's our lover, he's our bridegroom, he's our closest friend. And he will not deprive us of the pleasure and privilege and glory of enduring with him the sufferings which he endured. And he does all that because of the cross, where he earned all this for us by his own absolutely unique and perfect sacrifice for sin, that he might redeem those who were given him of the Father from all eternity. And so suffering has the practical result, as it should have, in the life of the child of God, that it brings him closer to Christ, that it welds him to Christ, just as in a godly marriage, the sufferings that afflict husband and wife bring them closer together. So does sufferings which we endure, do the sufferings which we endure bring us closer to Christ. In the world, when a couple suffers, 
It drives them apart. You read in the press, this and this tragedy happened to this and this couple, and six months later you read they were divorced. In a godly home, husband and wife share the sufferings between the two of them, and it brings them together. It pushes them into each other's arms that they may be strength for each other. Somewhere in his writings, Hooksma uses the figure of a shrub on a, on a barren mountainside where the winter winds howl and the cold is relentless and the ice and snow blast this shrub. What happens? The shrub sinks its roots deeper and deeper and deeper into the soil. And so it is with a Christian. Affliction is the storm of life. But affliction drives him into the arms of Christ. Affliction makes him sink the roots of his faith deeper into Christ, his Lord. I think that's why persecution is going to be tolerable for a believer as it was tolerable for the Christians in the Colosseum and as it, as it was tolerable for our fathers at the time of the Reformation. I would almost say easily bearable. No matter how cruel that affliction may be. Because there is that mystical union of Christ and his church which no power can break, but which is strengthened and sanctified by affliction. And so we suffer with Christ. Think of it that way, beloved. Think of it that way. We suffer with Christ, not something which he did not suffer. And so when we suffer with him, he doesn't sit in heaven unmoved and indifferent to our sufferings. I remember when our boys were small, that one time one of our boys came in the house with a sliver, driven sliver about that long and big, driven deeply into his leg. And that sliver had to come out, of course, so... I had to get a needle and sterilize it and dig that sliver out. And it was quite a job. And the pain was intense. And he turned to me and he said, Dad, he said, don't you love me anymore that you hurt me so bad? And I said to him, it's because I love you that I hurt you. And that's the way God, Christ looks at us when we suffer. He suffers with us yet. He suffers in our suffering. The agony of seeing his people suffer, but he is willing to endure it in all of its intensity because he knows it's necessary. That's the way we are brought closer to him and finally to glory. And so in conclusion, what must be our attitude towards suffering? A few texts come to mind. 1 Peter 5. 
Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. Henry mentioned that a little while ago. That's our calling in suffering. Humble ourselves beneath God's mighty hand. Don't kick and scream and fight and quarrel with God and rebel against the sufferings which come your way. Humble yourself beneath God's mighty hand. He will exalt you in good time. And the cares that are your lot, cast them on him. He cares for you. As you suffer, he cares for you. And then I think of the words of Jesus. If any man would be my disciple, you want to be a disciple of Christ? You want to follow him? That's what disciple means. This is the qualification for discipleship, than which there is none other. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Be Simon the man from Cyrene that carried Jesus' cross behind him between Pilate's Praetorium and Calvary only in the spiritual sense. So important did our fathers consider that instruction of the Lord that you will find that expression included both in our form for the administration of the Lord's Supper and in our form for the administration of holy baptism. In fact, in one of those forms is added even sometimes almost to my chagrin Cheerfully, cheerfully bear your cross. Cheerfully. That's what the form says, one of them. Daily, daily bear your cross with cheerfulness. And if we see suffering as scripture presents it to us, that takes faith. It takes the faith of what the, which the apostle speaks in 2 Corinthians 5. We walk by faith, not by sight. But if we believe the word of God and we believe the, the teachings of scripture, then there is a kind of a halo which God places on suffering. It is a special treat, a special privilege, a special glory for the people of God. And then there are those words, you know, in Romans 8, and they seal everything I have said. If ye are children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together, Christ and us, glorified together. For I reckon, reckon, I reckon that. I've thought about it. I've looked at it from every conceivable point of view. I've discussed it with the people of God. I've come to this conclusion. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Ah, that's it, isn't it?
Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.